uh, some more meditation. But I, I don't know if anybody really wants to meditate, though, at this point, you know. After lunch, you know. You ready for that? Okay. Okay. Since this is not a democracy. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's sit some more. things that we gain, one of the benefits of practicing meditation multiple times in a day is that you get to see multiple different mind and body states. And you see, maybe one period of meditation is more pleasant or more calm than another, and you see that you can sit with different experiences, different mind and body states. And you start to develop some skills in kind of navigating different energies. So if you're falling asleep, you might find it, you know, that it's helpful to sit up a little bit or open your eyes, take in some light. If you're very anxious, you might find taking some deeper breaths and releasing them slowly. But the spirit of mindfulness essentially, is to just be open and present and accepting of whatever is arising. And and I think we tend to forget that very quickly. So that when some sensation comes in the body, our immediate reaction is to move and shift and try to change it, rather than to say, oh, can I take my mind into this? What happens if I surrender to this itch or this ache? What happens if I breathe around it and just let it be there? Don't fight it. The Buddha tells us that suffering arises not from the discomfort itself, but through our mind's rejection of the discomfort. Our minds (coughs) wish to get rid of it unwillingness to just be with it. And that when we can let go of that, of the aversion to the experience, the rejection of it, we can allow it and accept it, that then the suffering actually ends. It doesn't mean there isn't still discomfort. But the mental suffering, that feeling that this is not acceptable, then that dissipates. So see if you can bring that spirit into this sitting, a willingness to explore whatever comes up. If you haven't closed your eyes yet, you can close your eyes. I know some people are not comfortable with their eyes closed in a group, so you can sit with your eyes open, just 
Lower your gaze so you're not looking around. And as we did this morning, just beginning by softening the body, relaxing head to toe or toe to head. Really letting the body release. being held by gravity as we are. Sometimes as we get settled, the body will start to feel very heavy. Really feel it as an earth element. At other times, the body feels very light, the air element. And again, a sense of opening. I think we sometimes look for something special in meditation. But our practice is really about being with the ordinary. Uh, that's why we sit with our body, body sensation and breath. We're just in a room together, sitting quietly, not doing anything, not even trying to accomplish anything. Trusting that awareness, silence, stillness, that these qualities, when combined, will have a beneficial effect on our mind and body. and not knowing what that might be. Notice now your energetic state. Are you alert? Are you foggy or tired or anxious 
another aspect of experience that we can observe changing through the day, especially when we meditate. It usually feels different to meditate in the afternoon than it does in the morning. Not better or worse, just different. And recognizing that. Seeing where your mood is right now. Has that changed through the day? Do you have an attitude towards meditation itself right now? Sometimes the most obvious thing gets missed. When we're feeling like not doing something. Maybe you want it to be different. Oh, I liked the meditation before. Why doesn't he do that again? Or I like it when he's talking. I should get some guided meditations and take them home. And then we're sitting here thinking about meditating when we get home, instead of actually doing it when we're here. All of these are simply habits of mind, not mistakes or failures. And as we sit with them, we just become more familiar, start to make friends with them. Oh yeah, there's that guy, there's that one. No big deal. And then we come back, come back to the breath.
as part of your mindfulness practice, begin to notice what types of thoughts are most persistent for you. And try not to judge whatever you see. Whether they're thoughts of planning, thoughts of resentment, thoughts of sex or money, trivial thoughts, profound thoughts. Just notice these patterns and habitual places your mind goes. And try not to judge them. They're just thoughts. Okay, the day goes on. Some people who are way back there, way back. You're safe back there, don't worry. Um, so I'd like to open it up for any more questions, if there are any. Yes. The microphone person. is here. Hi, I'm Erica. Um, A couple of things came up. I'm having lots of visuals. Um, Uh, A lot of visual. Yeah, a lot of imagery. Yeah. Um, And when you, during meditation, when you said, you know, your your thoughts may may come up, they may have to do with planning. Yep. They may have to do with resentment. Yep. And then you said, or sex or money. And I thought, eh, 
I could probably use more thought on that. I should probably focus on You could on use that. more thought. Yeah. Don't ask for, you know, trouble. You know, right? Instead of, you know, we're living in a lot of crisis right now. Sometimes I feel guilty because it's first world crisis, you know, um, but it is a crisis and mm-hmm. a personal crisis that my future husband and I are going through um, and his children. And a lot of us are very damaged. And for the last eight months, every day has been an an insult on us. Mm. Um, and another imagery, and my question will arise out of this, but the imagery that you were saying earlier about that, uh, that angry driver yeah. and how, you know, how to have compassion for that person. Mm-hmm. And, well, okay, I hope they get there safely. <clears throat> I was telling Brian, you know, I try to have compassion, mm-hmm. but I feel like I'm in that car, and instead of waving and going, oh, that's too bad, I'm, you know, not, yeah. not self-pity, but I keep getting rear-ended. Yeah. And it's like... Okay, now I'm living like this. I'm going to say if you're going to get rear-ended, you know, to the, the less tight you are, the less damage you'll have. But mm-hmm. um, it's daily. And I not, we never know what time or what kind of, you know. I don't know. My image of, of, like, I was saying to him, instead of maybe I should just get out of the car. Not, like, leave the relationship with the children. I love them. But get take an alternate route of transportation. Like, and then we created this magic carpet, you know. I mean, how living mindfully in crisis... Um, I've never lived in this kind of crisis in my practice. Um, how do people in crisis, whether first world or otherwise, live mindfully and find peace when you're on panic mode all the time? Thanks. Are there any other questions? <laughs> uh. You're on. <laughs> no, I, you know, I... I, I my immediate response is I, I don't know that they do find peace. I mean, when when things are in chaos and crisis, you know that's what's happening, and and you you know to to respond to it peacefully would be almost like nutty, you know, like what's wrong with you? Why aren't you freaking out? You know, so. Um, I think the the acceptance is the acceptance of the panic mode of living with that and not and just the the only uh, consolation is everything is impermanent. You know, so it can't go on forever. Uh, I mean, no, no doubt, like practicing intentional stress reduction, you know, doing intentional calming practices and taking as good care of yourself as you can, you know, getting exercise and, you know, eating well and all that stuff. Uh, you know, you got to take care of yourself. That's about, but beyond that, uh, you know, I don't think you, there's, you can turn it off that there's some switch in your mind that you know, you're not just not going to feel anything about it and, uh, um, yeah and I, I think you do have to you know assess uh, how did this come about what's my part you know it's the 12 step approach right what's my part in this uh, do I bear some responsibility and is there another way of handling it or 
as you're saying, should I, you know, just somehow get out of this, you know? Um, but uh, beyond that, I think it's really about not creating, you know, not blaming yourself for the way you're already feeling bad. I mean, that's the, that I was referring to in the meditation about the, I didn't use this term, but it's the two darts where the Buddha says there's the, there's the initial pain that we experience in life, and then there's our mental reaction to it. So we're in a difficult and stressful situation, and then we're like adding, I shouldn't feel this way, or I don't like feeling this way, or uh, it's that person's fault for me feeling this way, and, and that's the only stuff that we can potentially diffuse is like our our reaction to it and then it's then we're left with this sort of naked human experience which is that's the challenge is to not try to somehow you know build walls around it but to allow ourselves to be with it and be forgiving of ourselves for for not being perfect in handling it yeah sorry you're having to deal with that Yes, actually, you had your hand up, right? So we'll get it, and I'll get you next. Um, I've always dealt with um, insomnia as part of anxiety and so forth, um, and I found that meditation helps me to still my mind. But is it okay to use meditation as a means to fall asleep? Yeah, uh, that's a good question because it's. It is a, a natural uh, help to that. Um, it, the, the only risk in it is that if, if it conditions you to fall asleep in meditation, in ordinary meditation. Uh, I've, you know, I've heard pe- teachers say that, so I'm just repeating that. <laughs> I haven't had that experience. I've used mindfulness or intentional calming, breathing, trying to let go of thoughts, you know, those meditation techniques, myself certainly at times, uh, to, to try to fall asleep. Um, and it never made me fall asleep in my meditation, so I, I, um, I, I don't think there's any problem with it. I think it's probably a good thing for everybody to do, you know, anyway. In fact, one of the one of the benefits of doing loving kindness meditation, the Buddha says, is that you sleep well. You know, there's like eleven benefits. That are like, one of them is like you become attractive, and you what know, some of them are pretty funny. Oh, oh people can't poison you. you know. I don't know why that was an issue, but. Uh, yeah. No, I think it's fine. And I think that regular meditation outside of sleeping generally, you know, reduces that level of anxiety that then when you get to bedtime you don't necessarily have to meditate. Just read the big book, you know. (laughs) Known for being a great uh, sleep inducer. Yes, back, back here.
Hi, I'm Lindsay. And my question is how to um, merge both the Dharma practice and 12-step recovery when they seem to conflict. Um, Right now, I align myself, especially around the idea of higher power and all of that, more with the Dharma than with what, not what AA says, what but what people in 12-step meetings say. And right now I'm coming into conflict with um, attending meetings and finding that I not only disagree with what they're saying, but I find that what they're saying caused me suffering um, in the beliefs of how the world works. So I think I just want to know how to merge the two together so I don't feel like I have to pick one or the other, how I can have both working for me. simultaneously well I mean that's kind of you know that is kind of my main theme and and actually I was going to I'm going to after our next break I'm going to give a little talk generally on Buddhism and 12 steps to talk about that in general terms I I know that people run into situations where the predominant culture in a meeting or in an area is uh very theistic and um, and uh, rigid, and, and I, I, that's really I know that's challenging. Um, you know, if if someone tries to tell you what your higher power should be, I, you know, I certainly think we have uh, the weight of all the twelve step literature behind us to say that's none of your business. Uh, the steps themselves say that quite literally, you know, that it's up to us to, to find our own understanding. Um, but as for sitting through people's shares, uh, I do think that there are ways to understand theistic concepts through a Dharma perspective, and that's a lot of what I wind up talking about. And that's what my book, uh, Burning Desire, is about. I don't know if you've read that. Probably not. Yeah, it's my least read book. Um, But um, because, I mean, just to approach this somewhat uh, generally, you know, the God is a concept, which is, quotes John Lennon, uh, although his next line is somewhat odd, with which we measure ourselves. That was what, what he said, but I, I don't quite understand that. But, uh, it was measure our pain. Uh, measure our pain, is that what it is? Thank you. See, I, I, I rewrite lyrics, you know, it's to suit my own purposes. Uh, God is a concept is the important thing. And it's, a, it's language that's used for various purposes. Um, and, you know, the, the ancient religions, you know, the, uh, all the main religions of the wor- world religions, most of them, were, came about during a period that's called the Axial Age. So from the, pretty much by the, around the time of the Buddha and, you know, up through Muhammad, you have sort of the major major religions. I guess, I think Judaism probably predates a little bit. 
But anyway, so you have this era, which is pre-scientific, and in which consciousness and the understanding of reality was completely different from, I don't know how much consciousness, but the understanding of reality and the ways that people communicated and, and understood reality was completely different. So you had, you know, a sun god, right? I mean, the sun is really powerful. It, the sun is a higher power, you know. I don't know if it's a god, you know, but, but the, you know, this, this was a way of understanding things and whether, whether at that time people took these things literally or not, I, I don't think that was even like, I'm not even sure there was the idea of literal. You know what I mean? That maybe people didn't think about, is this really true, true? It's just, yeah, the sun god. You know, you just kind of accepted it. Like, you know. um, I mean, I don't understand how Wi-Fi works. You know, I just accept it. You know? I don't even really know what Wi-Fi means. Because I always thought, like, hi-fi was like the way we listen to music. In the old days, high fidelity. Is it why fidelity? Anyway, you know, it's just like we live in, we kind of, get, in our cultures, we live in a, and we don't really sort of try to dissect it. It's just this is the way things are. And at that time, that was the way people just understood things. So you have a Bible that says all this stuff, and a Quran that says all this stuff, and Buddhist literature that says all this stuff that makes no literal sense in our world. We live in a very literal world, you know, where we expect if you say, turn your will and your life over to the care of God, that means that I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of God. And we, we try to understand that on some literal level. But it doesn't... What, is it, what does that... If you, if you say those words, try to make them into a... Okay, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't make any sense. What, where, where's my will? How, what's turning it over? How do I, that sounds like I'm giving something, where, my life, how do I give my life to something? What's God, you know, it just becomes this, so realize, okay, this is talking about something different from the literal meaning. Now, some people think that when they say, God, take my will, that there is a being out there who's like performing will surgery on them <laughs> and removing their will. Or we're moving their character defects, you know, character defect surgery. And, you know, God bless them. (laughs) That's fine. You know, if that works for people, great. You know, I have my own understanding of it, you know. And when I, I think in Star Trek, they have the universal translator. Uh, One of my fellow teachers, Heather, she used to talk about this. So I, says when she goes to a meeting, she uses the universal translator. And that's kind of what I do. I hear it, and it just goes through me, and it comes out the other side as dharma. It's kind of like it's filtered through my mind, and it comes out as dharma. So I hear higher... You know, someone says... um, I mean, the, the great... You know, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Okay, that's good. Nothing in... Yeah, God's universe is a mistake, right? So I'm like, okay, the law of karma, 
never, you know, everything has a cause, so it's not a mistake. It's caused by cause and effect. So I, I got it. Now, what they might mean is there's some being up there that goes, oh, move them over there, and we'll let Clemson win the game, and then, you know, we'll have, you know, it's like, okay, if that's what you believe, great. But it doesn't make any sense to me, but it makes sense to me that nothing is a mistake because I believe in cause and effect. I don't believe that the universe is chaotic and that uh, there's some chaos, I would say. But anyway, Um, don't let me get into physics. I think you get the idea where I'm going, you know. I mean, I have a piece in One Breath at a Time where I go through the Lord's Prayer. And I, I stuck that, I stole, you know, I stole my own material because I self-published this. So I, I stole that from myself and put it in here in the workbook. But, you know, where I go through the Lord's Prayer, it was really fun for me to do. I hadn't thought it all through, but I was like, okay, I think I can do this. I was like, okay, you know, each line into Dharma. And I mean, that's a pretty, you know, Christian prayer. It's like the core Christian prayer. And I was like, this is Dharma. So I think you can find Dharma. It's a matter of not having, you know, we ceased fighting anyone or anything. It's like, to, and that includes fighting with myself, you know. Like, I'm going to afford it. Yeah. I, you know, for some people, I know it just doesn't work. And that's why Noah Levine started Refuge Recovery. Because some people just, like, they can't, you know, they can't accept that the word God can have other, a meaning other than the one that, you know, fundamentalists put on it. But, uh, you yeah. know. So, that, was there another hand up? Yeah. Hi. Hi, my name is Brell. Hi. Um, Say your name again. B R E L Brell. Oh, Brell, uh-huh. like Jacques Brell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I heard you at a refuge recovery meeting in Petaluma a few weeks oh, yeah. ago, uh-huh. and um, you were talking about how some people sort of use meditation or spiritual practices in a sort of altered consciousness-seeking, almost addictive sort of way, mm-hmm. and. Um, and how this practice is much more about embodying the practice and coming back into the body. Yeah. And that really resonated with me a lot. But it also got me thinking about how, you know, I, I appreciate sort of different levels of consciousness. Right. And, you know, that that seems to have some spiritual value. Mm-hmm. And Fair enough. And, um, <clears throat> and it, yeah, it's just something that, that I've thought about, like, in the context of, of not having drugs and alcohol in my life. And like how, like what is the value of that when you're in recovery and like how do you balance that out and how do you have a skillful, healthy relationship with that? And so I don't know if if that's a question. I think it's a great, great question, great thing to explore. I'd love to see if we can talk about it a little bit. Um, Because, yeah, the people who are interested in consciousness talk about the need for humans to have altered states that it's sort of a, a natural thing. That's one of the reasons people pursued psychedelics originally. And, and, the, and, but the, and the things like whirling dervishes and uh, things that are just meant to... And the little kids who like spin around until they get dizzy and fall over, right? I don't know if that's really true, that that's why they do it. Uh, but 
it, I, I had a, a drug and alcohol counselor who said that all those kids are druggies, but <laughs> uh-huh, right. maybe. But I, I, I certainly think that. Um, uh, what do I think? It's you know, altered states are not, not a bad thing, and altered states arise naturally through meditation. Uh, at times, but if you're meditating to get them, <laughs> you're kind of misusing the meditation. Uh, um, and uh, but they're like a byproduct. They're a healthy. They're a healthy byproduct of them. Um, you know, I I think uh, like I w- went to a basketball game on. New Year's Eve with my wife, and you know that's like kind of those crowd things of being cheering and screaming, and you know, and being totally like ugh, adrenaline and everything. I think that's kind of one of the way that people, one of the healthy ways people have. I don't know how healthy it is, but healthy enough as long as you're not, you know, throwing things at the players or, or fighting with the people in the stands. You know that that's an altered state. You know that the, these moments of rapture that you get into, though, in, in those uh, situations, and uh, music, dancing, the arts. Uh, altered states aren't always ecstatic. So, you know, I, I certainly find myself at times uh, writing and get and and like kind of snapping out of it, going, "Wow, I was just so absorbed." That my mind was in this other place, and this the flow flow state, you know that term, like the zone, and so all, there's lots of ways for that to be part of recovery without without drugs and alcohol, and, and I and I certainly yeah I think it's a very uh, useful and probably is an important thing for people to have. And a, a lot of people go for that with their exercise. Uh, personally, I'm too lazy to do that. Um, I almost had a hole in one the other day, this far away, and that—that that was almost an altered state, right there. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's hard to alter your state in golf because it's so slow. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I—I I don't know if I'm answering, but yeah, I think it's—I—it's—it's it's really what your relationship is to it ultimately, right? So if it's like, oh, I got to get that jacked up feeling. I mean, that you know, people who are like, the only time I feel really alive is when I'm climbing Half Dome and I'm hanging off the edge. I'm like, I feel alive other times than that. I don't want to have to depend on like a life-threatening situation in order to feel alive. You know, I've got to just jump out of airplanes. Okay. Um, so meditation's a little bit of a safer way to achieve that, and, and yeah, and and yeah, there's beautiful uh, altered states you can get in through through meditation, and uh, and and having said, you know, you shouldn't do it to get that. Um, you know, my one of my main teachers uh, teaches jhanas, which are the uh, meditative absorptions they're really altered states of concentration and I've pra- practiced and studied with him for a long time and, and I co-taught a retreat with him and it was very interesting that my sense was that there were a lot of people on this retreat who were like they wanted to get into like the you know the rapture state that he was talking about or the you know the state of deep deep equanimity and peace or the expanded consciousness and all these states that he's talking about 
Uh, and during the retreat, people would come to, for interviews with him or with me, and because he was like the big teacher, I didn't get a lot of people. But the last few days, people started coming to my interviews, and they started coming in going, uh, you know, I think I have a little bit of a drinking problem. <laughs> Or I think, uh, you know, my husband has got a, uh, you know, I think he needs to go to Alan, or I need to go to Alan on it. It, it was like, here's everybody here to like get these like high states, but they hadn't really resolved these other issues, and it was very telling to me. Like, yeah, you want to go and have these special meditation experiences, but you haven't done the foundation work. I found that after I got sober and worked the steps for several years and really cleaned up my life, my meditation went much deeper than it had before. And I had done a lot of meditation uh, before I got sober. And it, it, it was only after I was sober for a while that it started to really work and that the altered states naturally came about and I didn't have to go and try, seek them out. They came to me. You know? Yeah. So, Okay. Get Heather, and then one more in the back, and then we'll take a little okay, break. Okay, just really quick then. Yeah, take your time. Um, uh, I don't know about seeking this altered state again, but I sure did appreciate it. I came to your um, your once-a-month meeting here um, this last time. That's how you, you announced this, re- right. this day. And... Um, I only felt like that meditation. I meditated once because Odeon, this uh, temple up here at Stewart's Point, doesn't invite public in, but they needed their gardens done. <laughs> so I gardened for four days and, and stayed there for three nights. And anyway, I sat there and meditated and went through the whole thing. And the last two days, we didn't talk, which was really weird. And uh, But... I blurted out. I could not help myself. When I got into the girls' room, I I said, now this is the shit. (laughs) Because I got into this state that I did that last Friday. And I hadn't expected it ever Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And it was that, you remember you were talking about that little levitation thing? When you're you're in your body, but you... You're in your body, but you're not really feeling your body as a body. It can't be explained. But it is interesting that when you're not even trying, when you're not even going somewhere with meditation, you're not, you know, like just now I, I kept catching myself thinking too much, thinking too much, and then I went, oh, what about the body? Yeah, sure enough, I'm getting a cramp in my foot. Uh-huh, so, right. you know, uh, it, it's interesting it, when, you, when you, you know, bring it back into the body yeah. and what you are doing and where it does take you. That's all. Yeah. I thought it was just something to add. You know, I, I was listening to a Dharma talk from one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro, and he, he said... Uh, you know, people talk about like kind of spacing out or like having an out-of-body experience. He said, we're trying to do, we're trying to space in, you know, in this practice, you know, an in-body experience. Yeah. But uh, I will say, you know, the, the metta practice can very easily put you into somewhat of an altered state and not to, you know, try to whatever. I'm going to plant a positive seed there. That, you know, when you do the practice of may all beings be happy or even, you know, the earth and, you know, you're getting out of 
yourself. I mean, the, the thing, if you want, you want to know what, why, what altered states are, it's when ego shuts up, you know. Because ego suppresses and controls our, our states. And when, when ego falls away, consciousness expands. Uh, and and um, so when you do loving kindness and you're not thinking about me, but you're radiating kind, love you know, through all the world and you're connecting to other beings and the earth and the universe, you can get into a very beautiful, beautiful state of, of happiness. I don't know. So one more from the back and then we'll take a little break. Thanks. I've never talked in a microphone before. My name is Meg, um, and I want to thank you. And I, um, I just wanted to make a comment on on um, altered states. And if you have a comment about my comment, um, we've gotten onto altered states. Great. <laughs> um, I um, it's probably related to my bipolar disorder. I have been in an altered state. I'm not for the last two days, but for several weeks before that I was and I was just bursting with way too much electricity uh-huh. and senses and very uncomfortable and I have yeah. some physical problems and can't always get enough exercise and mm-hmm. I can't use mood altering drugs anymore. I mean it's been 20 years but I still miss it and um, and I um, what I just was dying for to come down mm-hmm. and to and to feel to feel nor I didn't know what to do with myself. I wrote a million poems about how hard it was to live in that state. Mm. Well, the last two days, I felt normal for the first time, quote unquote, for the mm. first time in um, in probably eight months, and um, I'm so uncomfortable feeling normal. Mm. <laughs> I've been miserable the last two days, wanting my altered states back, uh-huh. and um, so it's been really, really good for me to be here and to be sit with the. Meg, you know, two days ago you were dying for this, yeah. and now I'm so. I, I've just been reflecting on that during the meditation, and that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so yeah, let's let's take a, a little break, stretch, etc. Well. I know there's a certain uh, number of people who wind up having to leave early. And uh, it'd be nice if people in the back could kind of move up because we're getting kind of spread out all over the place. But, uh, you know, if you, if you like, that would be nice. But uh, do what you need to do. There's now more space in the front, for instance. And chairs open have opened up. So I, yeah, I thought I would just talk a bit about Dharma and twelve steps. Um, uh, 
you know, when I, when I finished writing my first book, I thought that I'd kind of be done with that topic, but uh, instead I found that uh, it has stayed interesting to me. Um, and I, when I first was doing this work, I had the sense that my audience was going to be people who'd been in recovery for a while and were kind of, as I was describing these stages, maybe people in between five and ten years who, who were like ready to go deeper with their spirituality or people who wanted to, uh, you know, really pursue their 11th step after working the steps. And, and so I was surprised when uh, I started to find a lot of newcomers showing up for my events and people being in touch with me, writing to me, who said, you know, that they had just gotten sober and they found my book and it was helping them to work the steps. Um, you know, and I, at first I thought, well, you shouldn't be reading this, you know. <laughs> you should... You know, you should just read the big book and uh, or the NA basic text, or you know, read your program literature first for a few years, maybe five years, you know, and then. But um, you know, clearly, uh, well, one of the things you learn as a, as a teacher and as an author is that you don't, you know, choose your readers or your students, and and that uh, you need to just. Uh, be grateful there are any. <laughs> and uh, and so it seems that, you know, going back through the steps uh, is, continues to be useful. And it, it continues to be useful for me. And, and, and certainly, uh, you know, I believe that, and, uh, and I use that word, Intentionally, I believe that it's really useful and beneficial to, when you are new to recovery, to formally go through the 12 steps in order uh, with a sponsor or with some kind of guide. And particularly, you know, the inventory and the amends and that whole process. But that after that, the steps uh, can continue to stay very much alive and, and that uh, it becomes much more of a, an ongoing relationship with uh, whatever is called for at a given time. And, and, that, and that, indeed, over time, our relationship to the steps changes. Our relationships to each different step changes and, and takes on different... Uh, Uses different values, different meaning. So, step one in Alcoholics Anonymous uses the word alcohol, but in other programs could use a different word, does use different words. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, drugs, food that our lives had become unmanageable. This starting point is a, 
And that the admitting is that is the beginning of any kind of spiritual transformation, any kind of spiritual growth or change. Uh, and it's, it means that we we see things differently all of a sudden, or maybe not suddenly, but you know there's a there's some kind of change in our view of ourselves and our behavior and maybe even the world. Um, and this is, in the recovery, we call this coming out of denial, which is an interesting word. Denial implies that we know that there's a problem, but we're denying it. Like, yeah, you know, you go, the cops sit you down saying, did you shoot that person? I deny it, and you did, but you know that you did it. Um, that's not a good example. Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm not that quick with the metaphors, you know. But but you understand what I'm saying. Deni- and But I think for a lot of us, it's not denial, it's ignorance. Uh, for me, I feel like it was ignorance. I didn't understand m- what my true relationship to drugs and alcohol was. I thought it was one thing. And then I came to see that it was something else. In any case, it's this awakening, which in Buddhism, the beginning of the Eightfold Path, is right view, where we realize, oh, things aren't just random, and, and things aren't preordained. You know, things are happening in a causal way. And there's a way that suffering gets caused, and it's through clinging. <laughs> it's grasping, clinging. And uh, so this, both the idea of right view and a moment of clarity and coming out of denial, all these kind of visual images, uh, this idea of waking up, having an awakening, of seeing things clearly, which is what Vipassana means, uh, all of that is uh, pointing to the same thing, that, that, uh, that there's a shift in our way of understanding ourselves and our world. And, our, and in Buddhism, it's more generally about the world, including ourselves. In recovery, it's specifically about ourselves. But it's this waking up. So the admitting, I really see, is, is a moment of mindfulness of true mindfulness, of seeing truly the way things are. It's not just, oh, I'm breathing, I'm feeling my breath, but it's seeing clearly, oh, right. And, you know, the the, uh, traditional kind of hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talks about is this kind of coming out of the darkness, coming out of the shadows, seeing this other vision of the world. and uh, you know, and that's the start of any kind of change. Until we can see clearly, until we can have right view, there's no chance of change. Right? We're just wandering around in the dark. We're lost, and we're we're grasping at answers. We're grasping at solutions, but the but we're ne- because we're ne- never seeing the actual problem. We're never finding a solution. <laughs> If you don't know what the problem is, you can't come up with the solution. 
You know, so you solve what you think is your problem, and then nothing changes. You're like, wow, I did that. You know, I got the job. I got the relationship. Why isn't everything better now? You know, I got the money. I got the ego gratification. And it's like, that wasn't the problem. You know, um, you know so, so the, you know, nobody wants to admit they're an alcoholic, but it turns out <laughs> that it's, you know, a lot of people later on say, I'm grateful, right? Because they realize, well, that, that admission, that clear seeing was what made change possible, was what made growth possible. And, and so this practice, this mindfulness meditation, this is why it's different from the idea of meditating just to have a pleasant experience or just to stop your thoughts. Because mindfulness meditation is trying to have you be, have this kind of clarity moment by moment and see into your own heart and mind. And see into your, not so much your personality, but your kind of your ego structure, your, the way you react to things, the way you try to kind of control things, your things you, you, know, you don't like, the things that you're obsessing on. You know, people come to mindfulness, they're like, you know, I'm just spacing out, I'm worrying, I'm doing all this stuff, and, and think that they're not doing it right, but actually they're doing it exactly right because they're seeing clearly what's going on in your mind. What the Buddha is trying to do is to help us to see clearly because he knows that we're not going to change or know what to change until we see clearly. So the beginning of a Buddhist practice and mindfulness practice, just like the beginning of recovery, is painful and awkward. You know, it's not easy. The first 30 days, you know, the first whatever period of time until you kind of, okay... You, in in recovery, it's just kind of like learning how to live without drugs and alcohol, trying to, you know, accept the mistakes you've made, accept your, live with the craving that might be there, or, you know, start to clean up the mess, all, all of that, and rebuild your life. In Buddhism, I think it's more about acceptance and and coming to not so much change things as really recognize, oh, this is what's going on. This is what's running me. And I do have a certain amount of control over it once I see that. I can, I don't have to follow all these obsessions, these thoughts, uh, it doesn't mean the thoughts don't come up, but they don't have to become the drivers in my life anymore. And so, you know, the, the larger insight that the, the Buddha is you know, giving us, which again is a recovery insight, is that there isn't some answer out there that's going to solve your problems. You know, try, the, the money, the business, I was talking about my... The person I know is like, you know, sort of thinks of business as sort of defining their uh, worth, their, the success of their business and the amount of money they have. And, you know, that's not exactly, he's not exactly an anomaly in our culture, you know, somebody who looks for, for their self-worth through the material world. But, you know, we see this really clearly in the Buddhist teachings, that, that, that that's not the answer. And so so this... 
when we wake up, when we have this right view, what happens is that our intention changes. Right? So that's the second aspect of the Eightfold Path. I see clearly that the path I've been on of pursuing either pleasure or ego or money or whatever, that that's leading to suffering. And so my intention changes. Now, when your intention changes, it's a lot like when you turn your will and your life over to the care of God in that nothing actually changes at that moment. It's just that you've changed what you are being guided by, what your decision-making process has changed. Now you've decided, oh, I'm not going to live for that stuff. I'm going to find a different purpose or different uh, goals or, or meaning in my life. And as I say, nothing necessarily happens in that moment. But of course, the whole world has changed in that moment and, and, and then continues to unfold as we go through the process, as we stay with that process, as we keep coming back. But I've jumped to step three without uh, talking about step two, um, which I did talk about some earlier today. So uh, when we have this, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure it hasn't uh, evaded anybody that step one tells us we have no power, and then step two says, oh, but we, there's another power. And in some ways it can kind of feel like you're being set up, like, you're, you know, Okay, you told me I was powerless, but now you said I got to believe in God. Like, and it's, and that's kind of where people can feel really. People who don't believe in that sort of theistic view can be like, wait a minute, you know? They can either think, well, I'm not going to be able to stay sober. I've heard people say that. Well, I'm not going to be able to do the steps because you know I don't believe in God, or they, or they can feel well. This is just like one person's idea of how it works. I bet there's another way to do it. Uh, I don't have to do these, have a higher power. And uh, so uh, maybe both of those ideas are true. I don't know. But, um, I, you know, when, it, when the step says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, the first thing that I get from that step is we believed that recovery was possible. You know, put aside God or higher power or even sanity, because that can be a troubling word as well. But just, do I think it's possible to recover? Because that's, that's a critical question. Is it possible for me to do this? And many people believe that they are addicts or alcoholics or you know, have a problem, but do not believe that they have the capacity to change or that there's any way. And then maybe they look at the steps and go, well, this isn't going to work for me. So that's a terrible place to be caught between step one and step two, like knowing that, yeah, yeah this is a mess, but I don't believe that either, either I believe I have a lack of faith in myself or I have a lack of faith in the process. You know, when I go to a Treatment center, there's one treatment center I go to monthly, and um, one of the things I say to them about step two, I said, say, the fact that you are here in this treatment center means that in some sense you've taken step two. 
because you've come to believe that this place or this program or these therapists or whatever can help you to get sober. So they, they are, have some power. I, I, I'm not even sure the term higher, is that helpful? I think sometimes the term higher power uh, confuses the issue. Uh, the way I see it is that there are powers, and it's a question of whether we use them skillfully or not. There's the power of mindfulness is a power. It's not good or bad or higher or lower. It's just, a pow- it's just got power. I mean, it's more than a power, but it's, it is powerful, let's put it that way. If you are being mindful, then the power of mindfulness is supporting you. If you are not being mindful, then the power of mindfulness or the power of unmindfulness is undermining you. So in every moment, we're either mindful or we're not mindful. Most of them we're not mindful, you know, no matter how hard we try. So in all those moments that we're not getting the benefit of it. And that's just how it is, you know. Um, love is very powerful. Hate is very powerful. So let's, we don't even, so maybe not to think of it as love, love and hate. I'm not sure if, if love and hate both come from the same thing, I'm not sure what that would be, or whatever. But they're, but they're like partners in a way, right? You're, you're, I guess if you're not loving, it doesn't mean that you're in hate. But, uh, you know, the point is that the, these are all energies, and we, we have choices about how we relate to them, whether we use them or whether we don't. And our role, from a Buddhist viewpoint, is to make right effort. You know, to say, okay, I see how things work. I see how suffering arises. I'm going to set my intention to do that. Now I'm going to take the steps. I'm going to do the actual steps that, that involve that. And that's what, I guess I'm jumping around in the 12 steps, but I, I would say that's what steps six and seven are about. But let me get there. Uh, step three. Uh, I'm not exactly wrapping up my steps here, but, you know. When I write stuff, I make more sense. I'll just say that. So. But uh, this, but uh, step three, I think, is such a, a critical step. Uh, I think it's very often misunderstood and uh, sometimes even misused as a as a way of uh, criticizing people. You know, you haven't turned it over. You know, that kind of, um, and it. But, you know, as it relates to Buddhism, you turn your will and your life over. Those are two things. Your will is your intention. So, again, we're coming back to intention. So one of the themes of the day. I'm going to try to align my intention with something good. In the Buddhist world, we'd say align your intention with the Dharma, with the truth. So that means that I'm going to try to follow the precepts, I'm going to try to be mindful. I'm going to try to be compassionate, loving, generous. You know, all the qualities that the Buddha talks about. I'm just going to try to live in harmony with all that, which in the larger sense just means living in harmony with the law of karma. 
do the next right thing, we say. Simple. Ha-ha. And, and so there's our intention, our will, and then there's our life. And there's the actual doing of it, right? Taking the action. Turning it over, turning our will in our life over to the care of God. And I said, you know, it's nice that there's that word care is in there. The implication being that something good will come out of aligning my will and my, my actions with, uh, with the Dharma. Uh, and as I've been pointing out a lot recently, if step three were to be taken literally, it would be the last step. Because if you've turned your will and your life over to God, what else are you supposed to do? God's taking care of it. So why do I have to write an inventory, for God's sake? Well, that's proof right there that step three is not literally meant that you don't have any more responsibility in your life now. And nobody really, that's not the way anybody who's serious about recovery practices that step or understands that step, even the most devout theist. Because <laughs> um, what I think happens is that we turn our will and our lives over and then we realize, oh, this isn't so easy. You know, I want to change. I want to live differently. But I've been the force of karma or the momentum of karma is moving in one direction, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion <laughs> towards self-centeredness, toward, you know, and, and acting on impulse and craving. And now I've decided, you know, I made a decision to not be that way. Well, good luck, you know. There's some work that has to be done before you're going to ch- turn that battleship of karma, of momentum, momentous karma. So we, step four is the beginning of actually changing our karma. That is, we look at our past karma. What have I done in the past? What have been my actions that have been harmful? And, and from a Buddhist view, I think there's a lot more than just looking at who I hurt. There's also looking at my mind, so, which is one of the reasons why I say that meditation is actually a form of inventory. Yeah. So we, we start to see how we've created this karma and the fourth step, and then the fifth step, we share that with someone else so that it doesn't stay just trapped inside. And because part of the a big part of the change is being open and honest, right, and letting go of shame around who we are. And it doesn't mean we go announce it from the rooftops, but we at least don't hide it from everybody in the world. We at least share it with one person, and certainly many of us have shared things in, in meetings that we could never have imagined saying in public uh, before we got into recovery. And, and anybody who's done such a thing knows how powerful that is to share the truth, to speak the truth, how freeing that is. This is one of the places where I think that the 12-step world has something that the Buddhist world doesn't have so much. There's a little bit of that looking good thing that goes on in the Buddhist world, you know. 
Come here on Monday night sometime if, if you haven't. There's a little bit of that goes around, you know. It's like I'm, you know, I've got the right scarf and the right Lululemon, and you know, and and when I meditate, you know, I have this beautiful posture, and then when I go home, you know, forget about it, you know. I just do what I do, and um, and and when I come, but when I come in here, I don't. I'm not going to tell anybody about you know my little thing, you know, whatever that is, or my big thing. Because these people are all so spiritual, and, you know, certainly none of them are suffering the way I am, you know. Uh, and, you know, if I admitted that I had this problem, they'd be like, oh, what are you doing here? You know, you should go over to the basement, right? You know? <laughs> we really should get them to open one over there. The shame basement. You know? But uh, uh, that's so powerful, and and there actually there is a tradition in Buddhism for this, and and uh, in, um, the the in the monasteries they have to kind of confess their uh, the the ways they've broken the precepts each month. They're supposed to confess it, but I've been told by some monks that it's done more ritually or ritualistically than than as a like real share. But uh, although no. It, and more information is coming through. Um, <laughs> remembered something else somebody told me that uh, Abayagiri Monastery uh, up in Ukiah, where the, which is a Theravadan monastery, it's kind of re- related to this center. They, the the abbot there, I understand, has instituted something that is more like a twelve-step meeting. Has anybody here been up there? Uh, yeah, have you ever been to one of those? I don't know if they do it publicly, but I understand that they kind of have like a group, like kind of a meeting where people share stuff, feelings. <laughs> Monks have feelings? What? Anyway, we get to step six and seven. As someone mentioned before, step six certainly embodies the intention. we entirely ready to have... God, remove all these defects of character surgically, right? And, uh, and then step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And this is where I like to quote uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who says that this is a matter of karma. We must beseech the law of karma through our actions and not merely with words. Uh, I, I quote this in a couple of my books, and it's uh, a great phrase. We... So, what he's saying is that if we want things to change, and he says this quite explicitly, prayer is not going to be enough. Just having faith and praying isn't going to be enough. We're going to have to take the actions that bring about change. Um, and again, what is the 12-step 12, 12 programs? A program of action. I mean, it's so interesting. You know, if you look at how it works, you know, how the programs work, they're not, it's not through faith. As much as people will say, oh, you have to trust in God, and blah, blah, blah. But what do people do? People don't just sit around and go, okay, I mean, people I know and people who are successful in the recovery don't just sit around going, okay, God, when's, when are you going to fix this? It, they go out and they do stuff. They show up. It's all about action. Uh, as much as we talk about faith, I uh, interesting. That, that, that to me is a little dissonance. But... Um, but certainly the action 
is what brings change. And uh, in Buddhism, when we talk about action, going back again to the word karma, this, I mean, we can spend a lot of time, and I, I, will, I will try not to, uh, trying to understand the word karma, because the, the Buddha actually said that it's like there are aspects of karma that you just can't understand, and, and it's not helpful. But what's important to understand, of course, is that actions have results, and that the intention behind the actions informs the quality of the results. But the other thing is to understand that action refers to three things. It's not just things that you do physically. Thoughts create karma. Words create karma. And deeds create karma. So thoughts create karma. Huh. So this is one simple way of seeing how a thought creates karma. All that means is that there are effects from having a thought. So if I sit here and go, that mother bugging, digging, blah, 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 and focus on how much I hate somebody. What happens is that I feel filled with hate. And that is an immediate, instant karmic reaction to that thought. So I'm not saying that having that thought like has some magical effect. It goes out and hurts that person. But it hurts me right here and now. There's an effect from it. Now, then there's another effect, which is that everything we do, think or do, reinforces that habit of mind. So if I think angry thoughts a lot, I tend to have more angry thoughts. And so if I let myself get obsessed with anger about someone, it's keeps creating itself. And of course, what action, you know, deeds come out of thoughts. So maybe I build up so much anger that then I go out and act on it. So then again, the thought has created this karmic effect of act, taking a physical action. So the, famously, the, uh, the Dhammapada, the, uh, which is one of the Buddhist texts, the opening line, the translation that I find most useful is, the mind is the forerunner of all things. So all our actions, all our words, everything that we do in our lives, there's a thought before it. A lot of times we're not aware of the thought, which is one of the reasons why we need to pay attention to our thoughts, because if we don't, we're all the way down the line to the action before we see that we're doing it. But... You know, it's interesting to think this building was a thought before it was a building, right? Someone had to think, oh, we'll have a building, it'll be really square and ugly. That'll be great, okay. <laughs> you know, and then we'll put pretty things in it, and that'll sort of make up for it. Um, so, oh, wow. So thoughts, words, and deeds. These are the things that, have to, that we have to take action with we have to work on so the i would say that buddhism and the 12 steps come from sort of come from opposite directions with this uh, typically because it's a program of action you know in recovery the first thing we do is we stop taking a certain action when it's like i still have the thought and the desire to drink and use i'm not going to like say i'm not going to stop drinking and using until i 
don't want to anymore, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Why? That's not really going to help. So we take the action first. That was funny. I didn't mean it to be, but the, but the thought with Buddhism, we start by watching our mind, and we see how wow, I'm really obsessed with alcohol, you know, or I'm just I'm really angry, or I'm I really uh, am worrying about my job all the time, or whatever. We start to notice how what our mind is doing, and then we try to heal that part or, or let go on that end and on the recovery end we're sort of letting go on the physical end but eventually they come together you know they're they're going to the same place just you know integrated healthy mind body be, our our behaviors and our thoughts are all you know kind of working together doesn't mean we're not still having some crazy thoughts and a few crazy behaviors um so that's step seven, if you weren't following along. Step eight, again, doesn't have so much of a corollary in, the, in Buddhism. I think the closest corollary is when we do the formal loving-kindness practice and we go through all the categories of people. Um, it's like making that list. You know, we made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. But what step Eight does contain that's obviously Buddhism is it's got intention again. We became willing. And it's it, it, very interesting that the twelve steps without and I I don't know that I've there's must be something about this in the twelve step literature, but I can't recall having ever read anything. They implicitly acknowledge that intention and action are two separate things. Because step three says will and life. It doesn't say, just say turn your life over or turn your actions over. You will and your life. Step six says we're entirely ready and we're prepared, we're pointed in that direction. <coughs> step eight says we're enti- willing to make amends. So, so there was a wisdom in there that they understood that there's something... It's more than just the action that there. We have to establish the intention. And of course, step nine is making the amends. Um, I, obviously, you know, I'm. Uh, there's a lot of things, obviously, that can be said about all these steps, and I'm just really talking about the things that are coming to mind right now. Um, the, in general terms, I think step eight and nine are really about forgiveness and about relationship. And, you know, Bill Wilson talks about the fact that relationships were really at the root of our problem. Uh, you know, certainly many of us come out of problematic families and then, you know, have difficulties having healthy relationships. And coming into recovery is finding a new kind of family and a new set of relationships that's built around people with a shared wish to heal. I mean, the 12-step programs are founded in, in a social world, a social environment. The, there's a couple of, of Buddhist teachings that kind of relate to the making amends. So step nine, I didn't speak it. It's, you know, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others which I think is a really important caveat, except when to do so would injure them or others. So, you know, calling up your ex, 
to tell them that you were a jerk doesn't really help them that I can see. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you reminded me about that. <laughs> really happy to hear from you. When I've sponsored people or when I work with people and they talk about step nine, it always seems to come to that question. Well, I feel like I really owe an immense to my ex-girlfriend. I'm like, do you owe her money? Send her a check. You know, if you want to owe her an apology, you know, do you, maybe, you know, visualize this whole scene, okay? Like, she really needs to hear you say that you were sorry. That's possible. Not that likely. You know? <laughs> I mean, it is nice to have someone say, I was wrong. You know, that's, that can definitely be skillful, but how you do it, you know, and then, I'm, and then the fundamental question is, is there anywhere in your mind the hope that she's going to go, oh, honey, I really miss you. Maybe we should get back together. Yeah, no. So, I don't know. Although I have to admit that that's how my wife and I wound up getting engaged. So. <laughs> I should have told Mark to turn the recorder off. For that one. So, you know. Well, it wasn't quite like that, but... but. I did sort of sneakily try to make amends to get back with her, and it worked. So, But I was honest about my sneakiness, you know what I'm saying? I mean, to myself, I, not to her. I mean, I, you know, what would be the point of that? And, so there's two stories in, in Buddhism that, that relate to the amends. Uh, one is the, the a wonderful story, <laughs> if you like serial killer stories, about the Angulimala, who was this misguided. Uh, he was, in fact, misguided. He was uh, he was a spiritual seeker who who uh, his teacher, uh, someone was jealous. One of the fellow students was jealous and and told his teacher that he'd been sleeping with the teacher's wife. And uh, and so the so the teacher, instead of saying, "You've been sleeping with my wife," and Angulimala would have been like, "No, I no," uh, but instead of asking him and trying to actually, you know, uh, be honest about it, he told Angulimala, "Okay, here is your practice. If you want to get enlightened, you need to go kill a hundred people and chop off their fingers and bring them back to me." So Angulimala, which means necklace of fingers, went off to kill 100 people. And after he'd gotten to 99, he was in the forest, and the Buddha was going to go for a little walk, and, and his friends said, don't go in that forest, there's a serial killer in there. And Buddha was like, yeah, you know, what's he going to do, kill me? You know, I'm the Buddha. I got no, you know, I'm not trying to hold on to anything. And uh, so, but and supposedly, uh, 
Angulimala. And so Angulimala had done a lot of spiritual work, but then he was like creating a lot of negative karma here. It was like <laughs> one of those complex things. Karma is, was mixed. And his mother, Angulimala's mother, was coming from like the other side of the forest. And the Buddha, who was like, had that eye, he could see. He realized if Angulimala kills his mother, he's done for karmically. Like if you kill one of your parents, that's like you're into the lowest hells for a long time. Uh, they have hell in Buddhism. See, it's another thing people are like, what? And so the Buddha said, I'll just go in and, you know, uh, I'll just go in and do my thing. So the Buddha goes into the forest and Angulimala sees him and says, ah, I'm gonna, here's my hundredth victim, great. So he doesn't see his mother, so he he's saved from doing that. But he's going to chase after the Buddha, which killing the Buddha, that's even worse than killing your mother. You know, you're just long time, cockroach time. You know. <laughs> he goes, the Buddha's walking along mindfully. You can imagine how he walked, like really graceful, beautiful, slowly. And then Gulimala, who was big and strong and fast, like chasing after him, and he can't catch up with the Buddha. And he goes, through the Buddha's magical powers, he's making it so that he's staying in front of Angulimala, even though he seems to be walking slower. Angulimala's like, stop that, stop you. And the Buddha just stops, turns around and says, no, you stop. You, know, you stop do, you know, doing this, chasing this crazy you know, practice. And Angulimala like, gets it for some reason, and just like, it's like the bubble bursts, it's like, what? You know, I mean, if you've got the Buddha in front of you, it kind of, he transmits something, I think. So Angulimala's like, right, and he gets to, and he gets down right then, takes refuge with the Buddha and asks if he can be a monk. I guess, I'm not sure what he did with the necklace, but, uh, <laughs> and the Buddha ordains him, and he becomes a monk and actually attains enlightenment. And so this is the story of, like, you know, redemption and forgiveness. Now, every time Angulimala went into the village for alms, people would throw stones at him. And he, would, he came back to the Buddha and said, you know, I go into the village, I come back, he's got, like, bruises and cuts. And, and he says, you know, what should I do? And the Buddha says, bear it, Angulimala. It's your karma. Basically saying, you know, you got off easy, right? Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing, this idea that somebody could be a killer and then they could, they could actually be forgiven. Um, and there, there's another story that's actually just sort of a side story, subplot of Angulimala, but it's kind of lovely, too, that he's walking through the village and there's a woman... He hears a woman crying out in pain. He goes into her hut, and she's giving birth. And and um, the Buddha had to, somehow the Buddha has tell, told him to say this to her. I think maybe he like heard about it. Whatever the, he says to the woman, uh, you know, I, because by the by the goodness of my life, since I have never killed a being. The Buddha told him to say this. I have never killed a being, uh, the purity of my life. 
uh, may you be healed. And, the, and, and Gulimala was like, I can't say that because I've killed people. The Buddha says, well, okay, just since I've been ordained, I've never killed a being. Okay, good. So he says that to the woman and then she's, the birth goes okay. And that's become like Angulimala is sort of the protector of the, the woman giving birth. And, you know, which is this sort of irony that he was this killer and then he becomes, and the chant, there's a chant that, that Buddhist monks do for pregnant women that's, that's based on what Angulimala said to this woman. Um, and anyway, Angulimala is like one of the best stories if you ever get a chance to read it in the texts. I'm, st- I'm still on step nine in case you're keeping score. Um, and I didn't mean to go on this long, but uh, I think we're doing okay. A few more minutes. So, uh, because there's a, a much simpler amends story in the text that I discovered by accident. And it's the only place I ever found the word amends. And in it, uh, Sariputra, who was the, the Buddha's kind of right-hand teacher, one of his senior students, is going off to... Uh, take a journey, and right after he leaves, a young monk starts saying to people, oh, Sariputta hit me when he was leaving, and he, like, insulted me. And word gets back to the Buddha that this young monk is saying this about Sariputta. And so the Buddha says, you know, bring that monk here and and go get Sariputta. Tell him to come back before he gets too far away. So he brings the monk and Sariputta in front of him says, would you mind repeating what you said? Well, Sariputta hit me and insulted me before he left. And Sariputta then goes about five pages <laughs> called The Lion's Roar, in which he essentially says, it is not possible for me to behave in that way. I've ne- I, because I have done this, and he goes through all the practices he's done and how awake he is and how mindful he is and that he would, could never... He would never strike and insult a fellow monk. And finally, so the the Buddha like turns back to the other, the young monk goes like, uh, "Do you want to change your story now?" <laughs> the monk's like, uh, "Yeah, I lied." <laughs> and the Buddha's, and so the Buddha's response is, "It's a good thing that you admit that you lied," you know. You can apologize for by making by admitting you were wrong and making amends for it. You know you've cleaned up the situation. It's much better, you know, to admit it than than to uh, you know if you admit it, then you can move on. We can we can move on from this. You're not. I'm not going to like hold you. Okay, you know, you're in a penalty box or something. You know, hockey reference. Um, and you know, and that—that's—I mean—that's the spirit of recovery too. We say, you know, when we make amends, you know, it's not always accepted, right? But we're done. You know, we've done what we can do. We've, we've, you know, tried, done our best. We've done our side of it. And and uh, that spirit of forgiveness that the Buddha held. 10, 11, 12, are we going to make it? I was, yeah, I think we still have time to do this. Because um, we're supposed to go till 4.30, and uh, and we're definitely not going to go past 
Uh, it's, it's about 10 of 4 now. So, And I, I was hoping to do one more little exercise with you guys, and then we'll close with a little bit loving kindness. Um, so 10, 11, 12, you know, I think of as the kind of uh, maintenance steps. I mean, I, I think to me working the steps is a lot of it's about getting through nine, right? Because uh, 10, I mean, it's just so interesting that step 10 reiterates step nine. Uh, that says a lot, you know. Okay, I've got through those amends. Great. Now what's the next thing to do? Oh, continue to take inventory. Really? You know, it's basically reiterating 4 through 10, uh, 4 through 9. Um, but it's, the, again, that spirit of honesty and that, that, that this isn't about, oh, I just need to clean up my past karma. It's an acknowledgement that, you know, when we say we continue to take inventory it and promptly admit it when we were wrong, that's telling us that we're going to continue to do unskillful or stupid or unkind things. So it's built into the steps that we are imperfect and that we will continue to be imperfect. That Not that, you know, once you work the steps or once you're enlightened or you have a spiritual awakening, that you're never going to have to, you're never going to do anything bad or again, you know, and, it, uh, and that if you do, well, you might as well just quit or go drink, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's really that reminder that, oh, this is just, it's just life, you know, and this is, how do I live? This is showing me how to live. It's not showing me how to be good. You know? It's showing me how to live as an imperfect human being. Step 11, obviously, uh, is an important one to me. It's the lo- longest step in words, word count, <laughs> I believe, and... Uh, it's the one that's supposed to be about meditating, you know, where we're trying to stop all those words. Anyway, that's my ironic observation. Uh, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. So we're thrown back again into this God issue. And, um, you know, I, I think of conscious contact as being mindful, as being present. And, you know, where is God? Where are you going to find God? If God is anywhere, it must be here in the present moment. It can't be in the past or the future. Must, God must be here. So um, if I'm awake and aware, it seems to me that I'm having conscious contact. Um, in the... Catholic tradition I was raised in, they say God is everywhere. So if I'm awake and conscious, then I'm conscious of God because God is everywhere. Um, but it, it's also, I think, very significant that what, how the, the steps characterize what we're supposed to do with this, you know, Praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. You know, that the idea that, and, uh, that we're not pursuing this path for our own gratification uh, or to get control, our own control of things. Uh, but we're continuing to really try to stay open, awake, 
trusting that awareness and the, the intuition will arise out of awareness. Uh, you know, it's, it's that same thing that step three is doing, which is it's th- throwing us out there in this, this um, you know, kind of scary way. Saying we're not, there's no guarantees. We're not, not saying, you know, oh, if you just do this, you know, then you'll, you know, you won't get sick or, you know, nobody will ever die that you love. Or just, you know, you'll never lose any money, you know. It, like, no, it's, 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 it's how are you going to live with life uh, rather than you, you're going to get to control life. So step 12, uh, a beautiful step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So the, again, this idea that the spiritual awakening uh, gr- grows naturally out of the process. I don't have to like... Uh, uh, I don't do the process in order to arrive at the spiritual awakening. You know, it just comes about through the process. That's why... You know, striving for altered states or striving for, you know, I want to have this magical transformation. How do I get fixed? How do I have a spiritual awakening? How do I get enlightened? Just th- is not, you know, the way. It's, uh, in fact, that approach is just more grasping and more clinging. So uh, the trusting in this process, seeing ourselves as, um, as maybe a little smaller, I guess. For some reason, that's the image that comes to me. It's like, you know, there's this this great power of spiritual awakening. And I'm just a humble practitioner uh, and, and uh, doing what's presented to me. Not, it's not my job to go out here and you know, grasp at things and build, build awakening or something. It's like, you know, just show up one day at a time. The simple things that we're told uh, to do, you know, and the Buddha, when he talks about the foundations of mindfulness, he talks about the most mundane activities that we should be mindful in. Being mindful when you're going to the bathroom, you know, when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're standing, when you're lying down. He's not like saying, like, focus on the third eye and imagine you know uh, a light opening up and see the aura arising and taking you up to the I mean it's just it's like pay attention to your breath you know and then trust in the result of that that there's something will come of that and it does doesn't it um, again just going back to my own story of recovery it's you know miraculous to me where my life is today and, uh, and, and I know there's a million stories like that. So th- what comes after spiritual awakening, uh, again, what I, what I love about that is that we don't get to you know, wave our flag. It's not having had a spiritual awakening, I announced it to the world. You know? it's, uh, <laughs> having had a spiritual awakening... I tried to help other people have a spiritual awakening, which is exactly what the Buddha did with his whole life after his enlightenment. You know, he had this moment of doubt whether it was worth even trying to teach, and then he had this awakening, this this insight that oh, there are, some people will get it, and then he just there was nothing else for him to do for himself. You know, 
it solved his problem. He went off and tried to help others. And that's the same spirit of step 12. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, all the loopholes are closed then in the last phrase. Practice these principles in all our affairs in case you thought there were times when you could take a break. You know, pr- uh, practice these principles in all your affairs. Same thing the Buddha is saying about in all our activities. Um, so the, then I think it's, it's worth investigating for ourselves what, we, what are the principles that are inspiring us what are the principles we are practicing and, uh, and there are many and we've talked about many of them today uh, 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 I have to say at this moment the principle that comes up for me is forgiveness and, and that's a, a maybe also has to do with this theme today of renewal. That uh, in order for us to renew, we also have to kind of forgive the mistakes of the past. But I, I, what the reason it comes up for me is because I can't practice these principles in all my affairs. A lot of the principles I can't practice in all my affairs all the time. And because I fail at that, I have the backup principle of forgiveness. So that even though I didn't practice all the principles in all my affairs all the time, I did have this other one that I can always practice, the forgiveness and the compassion for myself and for others, for the mistakes that I and they make. Ah. So that's a, uh, that's a good topic. Let's t- take that topic for 10 minutes and then we'll close. The topic of the principles. And just share with uh, one or two people about what principles you consider to be or what what are the principles that come to mind right now for you that are the principles of recovery the principles of your of spirituality the your guiding principles okay we'll just share on that for 10 minutes and then we'll start to wind down for the day Make sure everyone in your group has a chance to share. We'll still go a couple more minutes. Just wanted to make sure of that. I was actually not trying to stop the conversation. I was just trying to make sure everybody got a chance to share because sometimes, so that you knew, so a couple more minutes in case somebody didn't talk. Okay.
Well, thank you all. Um, thank you for participating in that. Any any last uh, comments on that? Yes, great. Um, I can grab the microphone here. Um, Um, I have a question about, um, you know, okay, I, forgiving people who've hurt me in the past, Mm. um, I don't, I can see that as doable. And I'm, this question specifically refers to some family members, Mm -hmm. um, who have hurt me in the past deeply, um, I've explained, you know, sort of the behavior. Anyways, it continues. Um, So, you know, like once my father, I didn't see him for two years, and we've been sort of building it. But it, the stuff's still there, you know. And it's like it's like he can't help it. Um, And it's it, um, and also with my sister, it's kind of like, do I have a choice? Do I Mm -hmm. keep getting hurt, which I don't want to, and um, or do I not have a relationship with them? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have humility on this. Like I, I I'm far from perfect. I'm far from enlightened. Mm. And I, um, don't know if it's unhealthy, you know, like if I'm putting myself in an emotionally b- abusive situation. Mm-hmm. So I'm confused about it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, it brings to mind something in Jack Cornfield has a beautiful, <laughs> Forgiveness exercise. And I, I think I stole a lot of it and put it in here. Um, just uh, reworked it. Uh, and, and he says something about, um, you know, we forgive people, but, but that doesn't mean we'll ever allow them to do that again. You kind of, you know, and it certainly, forgiveness doesn't mean condoning behavior. Um, But so so you know there's that that you know I don't I certainly don't think that because we've worked through the past wounds we need to allow it to continue necessarily um, and and I mean I don't have an answer for you because obviously this is your situation and and I can't know what's what's best for you I would. I, I guess where I would start in terms of working with it is, you know, as it sounds like you've tried to sort of address stuff and you see that these people aren't really willing to change or don't know how to change, whatever. And so then the only question is, are you able to relate to those that stuff differently? I mean, if this is just, if you're just talking about verbal stuff that in terms of what's hurtful, Things people say to you. Well, it's some actions. I mean, well, basically, my my father is very close to my ex-husband, who's very hostile to me and um, really hates me. I mean, this is legal. There's in courts, and 
so it really rips me up. Yeah. But he doesn't see it as a problem. Right. You know, I mean, he said, my relationship with your ex-husband has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. And and it continues. That is, yeah, that is going to be an ongoing thing. Well, yeah, so, I mean, the first thing I was saying, I mean, like, like looking at how How you how you engage emotionally in it, you know, is the I mean that's the only thing that you kind of your side that you can look at is like, am I able to disengage from this and maintain a relationship that's that I want to have that that, that I'm getting something from and and I mean you know every intimate relationship there is this weighing of uh, because every re- intimate relationship involves some pain and conflict. Uh, Unless somebody knows differently, um, and and so I think there's always this kind of weighing of like, you know, especially when things are very problematic, and uh, so you know, obviously that's something you're looking at, and and as I say, I mean, kind of looking at what is your side, not in terms of what you're doing to them, but in terms of how you handle it. Can you handle it differently? And I'm not saying you should by any means, just like maybe if there's some way in. I mean, But it seems to me it's quite legitimate for you to say to someone, I know you don't see it as being affecting me, but it does affect me. And I can't, it's too painful for me to have this relationship be the way it is. And so, you know. I did that two years ago, so I haven't had a relationship with him for two years. Yeah. And we're seeing if it can work. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, like I said, it's... So but he's not, he's not willing to let go of something oh. that, you, that you find. So, I mean, that's, that's where it seems like that's kind of the, the, the line that you kind of ask him. Like, I mean, it's not, not to get too uh, emotional blackmail about it, but, uh, you know, kind of like... If you want a relationship with me, that I can't have that, you know. Don't know. But thank you. Yeah. Why? Hi, I'm Meredith. Um, I have a question about, well, I'll just say, um, I'm wondering why or if you do and I didn't hear it, but I wonder, why you don't talk about the development of compassion? Because, um, um, is that implicit? Um, it's I, so I mean, I, I do at times, uh, I think, I have, yeah. I don't know. Okay, I, I mean, I hear someone saying, yes, he does, yes, he does. So, <laughs> but... I mean, I just... I, um, yeah. I had to learn it, and it um, took me a long time. And it was only through someone meeting with me compassionately over and over. And it's the attribute that is most essential to me in changing. And not just you. I mean, 
I wonder why I don't hear it more often. I mean, people say, yeah, a little compassion here, a little there, but not like the develop, not uh, just... Well, certainly I Tibetan are, Buddhism, it's a huge focus in Tibetan Buddhism. I'd say probably more so than, than Theravada. Maybe I'm in the wrong school. Oh, well, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, know I, that lightly. But. I usually talk about compassion around uh, the fourth and fifth steps. And uh, that's where it usually comes up for me is that, that that in looking at my own failings, I start to develop compassion for others, um, and that's that that's where it it I think um, for me connects with the steps is that when we see our own failings and and the way we created pain for ourselves, we start to have that for others. Um, I'm, this sounds really critical. Why don't you this? You know, but I do. I just wonder. All you have to do is ask, and I'll talk about something. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh, other comment is: it seems to me that God is anything but a concept. God. God. Uh-huh. But that's a big conversation. But maybe it isn't. But that's my experience. I mean, how could it be a concept? But it, uh-huh. I don't know it. Well, I, I, the word is a con- is a concept. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, mean, yeah. I, I okay. think uh, Joseph Campbell said God is a metaphor. So that that's I think that's a more probably a more useful idea that the idea of God is a metaphor for the idea of some being or some force is a metaphor for the actual powers that exist, uh, spiritual powers. Yeah. And thank you for the Yeah. You've got me thinking now about compassion. Um, but uh, I, I feel like it's, it is one of the, I, I see it as one of my sort of themes in a lot of my teaching is um, is uh, and but maybe not as explicit uh, as it could be, you know. Particularly when I'm talking about uh, forgiveness and failings and you know and imperfection, you know that that then for me is like compassion is in the background of all that. You know that that uh, if I uh, forgiveness and compassion to me are partners. You know um, that that um, when I see um, like all right, just for example, if I'm meditating and my mind wanders, I forgive myself for that, and I have compassion for the fact that when my mind wanders, it's painful. So those are two things that. I, oh, wow, this is, and, and so in that I'm saying, it's okay, and I bet that hurt, you know, I care about the fact that that, that was painful, rather than the default of, oh, my mind wandered again, I've got, I'm not meditating right or I've got to get back, it's like, no, wow, that, that was painful, uh, and so that's where, I, so I guess self-compassion is where I focus more than the broader compassion, which... Uh, 
you know, is is just sort of yeah. Um, there's just so much uh, in the world that needs compassion that I, it's almost overwhelming. Uh, well, I, I want to uh, let's uh, let's do a little bit of a, a closing, and we can use that as a starting point from that. Um, So just settling into a comfortable posture, letting the breath come easily. Hmm. Just checking in with yourself right now. It's been a long day. I appreciate how many of you have stayed and been willing to to put in this time. It can be very hard to step out of our lives into a non-productive day, non-entertaining day. We're just breathing and softening. And as earlier we reflected on the the suffering and the healing of the earth and the planet, the atmosphere. We can also reflect on the suffering of beings on this planet and envision a world of healing and peace. We know that peace and healing are possible. There's already a tremendous amount of healing and peace on our planet. If it's possible for there to be already this much, peace and healing, then surely where there is suffering and war, oppression, violence and cruelty, ignorance, hatred, surely it's possible for us to bring peace, for people to wake up for everyone to see the preciousness of life, of their own life, of the life of those around them, and to value that above ideologies, above power, acquisition. Seeing all the beings on this planet living in harmony, in love. Hearts and minds healed.
and as humans treat each other with more care and love. Treating as well the other living beings on this planet with kindness and care. And seeing the species thriving, living in peace, healed. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. May we all live with peace, with wisdom. May our hearts be healed. May all beings be happy, joyous, and free. that you all made the resolution today to practice diligently. 90 sittings in 90 days. And I hope you'll continue to join me throughout the year. And uh, may you travel safely. And uh, Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.